This evening we will be looking at Genesis chapter 45, the first part of the chapter. So if you'd turn there with me, Genesis chapter 45. All sorts of evils are done to people constantly throughout our community, throughout even our own lives. And uh, how is it that, that a person can forgive when an evil is done to them? How can a Christian young person forgive a bully at school who has been perpetually causing him harm and, and persecuting him? How can a Christian who is physically abused forgive their spouse? How can a Christian hospital patient forgive his doctor for making a mistake in surgery? How can a Christian forgive a careless driver who ran a red light and caused them ongoing suffering, life, lifelong suffering? How could a Christian forgive someone like that? How could a Christian forgive how could a Christian parent forgive their child's killer? I mean, is that even possible? Can you forgive anyone who has sinned against you? Or anyone who's done a horrific mistake against you that's caused you some great harm? Is that something that you can forgive? Now, these scenarios may or may not compare to the situation that Joseph was in, but the source of his forgiveness should be the same as these situations. That the source of our forgiveness comes from a right heart, a heart that understands and believes that God is in all of this. And what you're going to see tonight in this passage is that true forgiveness comes from an understanding of God's sovereignty. When we understand that God is in control of all things, all things, including the evil things, He's in control of those things, then we can forgive. We recognize uh, the grace that we have been given, we recognize God's sovereign hand over all these things, and even in our pain, we can forgive. This is where Joseph is. He beautifully paints this portrait for us through his life. Let me read this passage that we'll look at tonight. Genesis 45, 1-15. Genesis chapter 45. This is the Word of God. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus 
says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I, also, I will also provide for you for there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Forgiveness comes through understanding God's sovereignty and the best comfort that we can ever receive from a person is understanding God's sovereignty in a situation. In verses 1-4, through Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. And then in verses 5-8, through he comforts them. In verses 1-4, through he makes himself known and he has to make it abundantly clear because they are completely stunned. Look at verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 3 at the end of the verse. But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They are stunned. You're going to see this sort of idea when Jacob finds out that Joseph is still alive. Joseph's brothers tell him and he is, the word actually that is used there is stunned. Here it's dismayed. They're dismayed at his presence. How, how could this be? How could Joseph still be alive? Judah, remember in the last chapter, had made, him, made a step towards reconciliation. Now, he didn't know this was Joseph, but but he was reconciling himself back to God. Why? Because he was willing to, to give himself in place of his younger brother Benjamin. Because he, is, he had recognized the guilt that he had as a result of what he had done to, he and his other brothers had done to Joseph. And he recognized God's grace in bringing them to this place, and now he's willing to give up himself in place of his brother. He was now thinking. Not just about me. Not just about Judah. He was thinking about Benjamin and he was thinking about his father. How could my, I possibly go back to my father and see him this way again? Surely, surely this will bring his soul down to Sheol. I can't see him that way again. That was not the case when Joseph was sold into slavery, was it? There was no thought of what Jacob would say or how Jacob would feel or how Joseph would feel. Joseph was led away and it says that he cried out to his brothers. He pleaded with them. There's no remorse there. Until 22 years later, they're confronted with this opportunity now to reconcile with God and they do. Judah being the spokesperson, I believe, for all ten of them. And so now that Judah has taken this step towards reconciliation, Joseph cannot control himself. That is, he can't control his emotions. We've seen this a couple times before where he had to excuse himself from the room and go and cry and then wash his face and come back. But here, he can't control himself and so he quickly tells everybody to get out of here. Okay, all of his servants, you need to get out of here because uh, I'm going to, to unveil my compassion for my brothers. And that's what he does in verses... 1 and 2. Notice verse 2. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. So, outside of his chambers, wherever this was taking place, uh, because remember, Judah had taken him aside to tell him about this. 
Joseph weeps so loudly that, that people outside could hear it. And it says at the end of the verse that, that the house of Pharaoh, the household of Pharaoh, heard of it. And I think that word of is important, although that is supplied by the translators. That's not actually a word that comes from a Hebrew word. That's why it's in italics there that the, the English translators supplied that word for us. But they heard of it. Not that, you know, you, you've seen these pictures on movies where someone makes such a loud roar or cry that it starts out and just in their home or whatever, and then you see it in the neighborhood and then in, in the whole region and then the whole world, and you can still hear the noise that far out. I think that's, that's not the idea of what's happening here, that this was the loudest cry ever that even Pharaoh, who's all the way over in his house, you know, a couple miles away or whatever, can hear this. No, this is that he heard of it. He was told of the, the uh, weeping of Pharaoh by the servants of Joseph, weeping of Joseph, excuse me, by Joseph's servants. So he heard of it through the spreading of the news. And so Joseph reveals himself to his brothers here in verses 3 and 4. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now notice what Joseph does not say, what he does not do. He doesn't say, you guys have no idea what I have been through these last 20 years. Let me tell you what has happened from the time that you betrayed me until now to rub it in even further. See, the test was over. They had passed the test. His goal was not to make them feel guilty. His goal was to see what was in their heart because they were going to be coming to a position of leadership over these many tribes and over the nations and, and he wanted to make sure that they had genuine hearts for leadership. And so Joseph gives no hint of any pain that he suffered over this time. The only time he does mention that is to calm them or to comfort them. We'll see that here in just a few verses. No, the first thing that Joseph says to them is, where is my father? I want to see him. Now this is just, this is so shocking to these men because remember, up until this point, how was he speaking to them? Through what? An interpreter, Right? He's supposed to be an Egyptian leader speaking the Egyptian language. And now, all of a sudden, he comes to them in, his, in their own language and speaks to them. And, and it had to take them back. And so they are stunned. Notice how many times he mentions who he is. He has to first, before he can comfort them with God's sovereignty, he has to comfort them with His own presence, that this indeed is Me. Notice how many times He tells them who He is. Verse 3, I am Joseph. Verse 4, He tells them, come closer. You need to see Me closer. The end of verse 4, I am your brother Joseph. Verse 9, thus says Joseph. Verse 12, behold, your eyes see. See, Come close. I am Joseph. I'm your brother Joseph. And He, he also gives them information that only they would know, they and he would know, that I was the one who was sold into Egypt. Look at the end of verse 4. I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. I mean, they, they don't believe it. Look at verse 3. They are dismayed at the end of the verse. They are dismayed at his presence. The word there, dismayed, is a Hebrew word that's translated in other places as Terrified. In fact, the New International Version translates it that way in this verse, terrified. They're terrified at His presence. 
the same word is used in Judges chapter 20, verse 41. Listen for it. The men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were terrified for they saw that disaster was close to them. What, what is going through the minds of these ten men? And, and Benjamin, of course, but mainly the ten men who betrayed him. They are gripped with fear. We have come into the presence of this Egyptian leader and what could he possibly do to us now? If this is Joseph, how quickly could he turn on us and cause us so much grief and pain? They don't believe it. They think it's some kind of a trick. And that's why Joseph says, come closer. This is me. It's your brother. Okay, You sold me into Egypt. So he has to first identify himself. And as that's starting to click with them, now Joseph comforts them in verses 5-8 through eight with the truth of God's sovereignty. And this is really what calms their fear. The truth of God's sovereignty. Joseph seeks to ease their guilt by reminding them that God's sovereign plan was to send him to Egypt. And we know this because of how many times he mentions that this was God's hand in it. And this is going to be very surprising for them because they take responsibility for what was done. They've already done it. They've said it to themselves when they didn't think anybody else could, else could understand them. Joseph listened in. See, our guilt has come back upon us. We should have never done this to Joseph when he pleaded with us. So on. And when they go back uh, to their father, and then when they come back to, to Joseph and, and they plead with Joseph and tell them what happened, tell him what happens, Joseph knows their heart. And so he wants to show them that it wasn't ultimately you. You had a hand in it. You had responsibility. But ultimately it was God who sent me here. Look at how many times he does that. Look at verse eight or verse 5. Excuse me. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Okay, so he does give them responsibility. You have responsibility. You sold me here for God sent me before you. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father. Okay, this is all God. Verse 9. Hurry and go to your father. Go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord. Yes, my brothers, you are responsible. You sold me into Egypt. Verse 4. You sent me here. Okay, You sold me here. But, you didn't sell me here apart from God. It wasn't as if God was over here somewhere and you were doing this this thing, this evil deed to me, God knew about it because God was the one who sent it. Sent me here. And this should comfort them, knowing that God was in control of all things. That while they were responsible, they never, and we can never, act independently of God. As if God has His realm over here that He controls, and we have our realm over here, God's not really in control of all these things over here. Okay, Actually, it works more like this. We did something that was evil, but God ultimately was in control of all that. How much different, how much different would our frustration level be in life 
if we saw all things this way, would the minor problems in our lives be so frustrating if we knew that God was in control of all those minor frustrations? That God sent those minor frustrations? What about the major things that are going on in our lives? The, the, the major problems. How much different would our frustration level be if we truly believed that God was in control of them to the point where, what does the text say? God sent me here. God sent those major problems your way. Notice the purpose of why Joseph was sent in verse 7. God sent me for you, before you. And then notice these key words, or this key word here that's going to be repeated, the word to, T-O. To, and here's the first reason, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. Okay, so one of the reasons God sent Joseph there was to preserve a remnant in the earth. Uh, and then he says, and to keep you alive. Okay, we could... Instead of two, we can put for the purpose of keeping you alive by a great deliverance. So God sent Joseph there to preserve a remnant. How did he do that? Okay, obviously through the abundance of grain that he stored up for the seven years, uh, uh, translating or um, interpreting the dream, and then storing up the, the grain that came, and then uh, and then taking command over it. Okay, so it's to preserve a remnant to save them through a great deliverance. That was why God had sent him. And I believe that this is why Joseph disguised himself. Because he was recognizing that they were going to be this remnant of leaders down the road, as I've mentioned before, these leaders of a great nation. And he wanted to make sure that they were in a position to take on that leadership with maturity, not where they would easily and quickly discard those whom they didn't love. He wanted to make sure that they were now living under God's sovereignty and under His grace. And, um, and Joseph recognizes why God had sent him there. Notice another reason, verse 8, Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God, and He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord over all the house, uh, all of his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The means by which Israel would be saved was through Joseph becoming like a father to Pharaoh. This is a title of honor that would give, be given to a prime minister of the land, which Joseph was. Uh, he's the father of Pharaoh. That the idea is, what does a father do for his son? He he provides for him, right? And that's the idea. With Joseph's put in a position where he's providing for his son so that his son can really live life without any worries. That's the kind of relationship Joseph had over the Pharaoh. Think of it. I'm going to take care of all your responsibilities. You don't have to think about anything. Just enjoy life and and um, and, and I'll take care of everything. That's the, that's the idea of Joseph being a father to Pharaoh. Not that he... He became somehow adopted the Pharaoh, anything like that. Joseph is made ruler over all Egypt to take on this role, and obviously this is going to have some effect on the people of Israel down the road. Joseph identifies himself to his brothers in order to comfort them. It's me. It is me. Come closer. Look at me. You're the one who sold me into Egypt. I'm the one who you sold into Egypt. Okay, now that you see that, 
don't fear, don't be grieved, because it was actually God that sent you. God that sent me here. Don't, don't be any more guilty than you are right now. And now in verses 9-14, through 14, Joseph points them to the next phase in life. He gives them hope that this is not some sort of trick, but this is actually God working through me, and now you're going to have a very prosperous and great uh, life coming up. Verses 9-15. through 15. He tells them in verse 6 and verse 11 that there's going to be five years more of famine and that they're not going to be able to make it on their own. So you need to come to the most prosperous part of the world right now, which is Egypt, and be under my care. And in a sense, Joseph is going to be father to them, take care of all their needs. So he sends them back to Jacob and and he reminds them of God's sovereignty even in his words to them about his father. Notice in his instruction, verse 9, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. God has done it. He reminds them of God's sovereignty. He urges them to hurry. Verse 9, hurry. Verse 13, the end of the verse, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Why the hurry? Well, one is they had already waited long enough to get the grain. Remember, Jacob waited to the last minute to send Benjamin there. He didn't want to let him go. And so they were probably pretty low on resources. He knew his father was getting older and he wanted to see his father before uh, his father died. So he says, hurry, bring him back quickly. I want to see him. And he encourages them with what God has provided for their future. Verses 10 and 11. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. I will be like a father to you. For there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have, uh, all that you have would be impoverished. In other words, otherwise they would be impoverished. Goshen is this land that is just uh, southeast of Egypt and it's a very fertile uh, grazing land and, and you're going to find out next week that, that Joseph's brothers, are, that's what they're all about. They're all about um, herding animals and so on, raising animals and so they'll need fertile ground for them to feed upon uh, near the Nile River so it still have, even though it's a, it's a famine, they would still have some source of life there and... Uh, So they're brought back to this place of fertility so that they can live and prosper under Joseph's care. And what we'll see as we move through here, uh, uh, actually we won't see until we get the book of Exodus, which is probably going to be a while before we do that. Uh, But but when we get to Exodus, uh, we'll see that it, it will have been 400 years, right, before... They actually leave this land. So God's going to provide for them and and their families are going to become great in number uh, before finally God leads them out through these plagues and through, obviously, the great miracle, the Red Sea. In verses 14 and 15, the reconciliation is complete. It says, Then he fell on on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards, afterward his brothers talked with him. Joseph reconciles with his brothers. They now recognize that things are, are settled and uh, it's time to go back and, and enter into the next phase of their lives. 
This passage is about comforting those who are plagued with guilt and remorse. Okay, Joseph recognizes how much guilt they have weighing on them, and he wants to re- relieve that, remove that. And the best comfort a person can know is when they understand God's sovereignty, that God is in control of it all. Didn't Joseph understand this for the past 22 years? When he was separated from his family, he recognized that God was completely in control of everything. And because he had recognized that truth, he could internalize it. And now when his brothers were going through that deep pain and sorrow, he could now comfort them. And this gives us another reason why God brings trials into our lives. Not just to test us. He does do that. Not just to reprove us. He does do that. But another reason, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, is that God brings trials into our lives so that we can know what they're like, so that we can comfort other people when they go through the same sorts of trials. Do you know how God comforts people in their trials? Certainly He does it through His Word, yes. He does it through other people who have gone through the same thing. Have you been there? Have you gone through a deep trial before? Saw someone else who had gone through it and they came alongside of you. They didn't have to know all the details. but You you didn't have to know all the details of what they went through, but you knew they had been through something similar. And you knew that they knew how to pray for you. They knew how to walk alongside you and hurt with you. Right? Have you been there? That's how God comforts people. He He uses people who have been through that trial and the verses that they held on to so tightly, the passages in Scripture that they held on to so tightly, they passed them along to you. Now you're able to see them with with a fresh perspective because now you're in the deep valley that they had once walked through. This is what Joseph is doing. He recognized God's sovereignty in his deep pain as he was going through this for 22 years. And now as he has opportunity to pass that on to his brothers who are in deep grief because of what they had done, he shares with them what had comforted him all those years. God was sovereign. One commentator suggests, Alan Ross, that, that understanding God's sovereignty is what enables a believer to forgive Others. If Joseph hadn't seen that God's hand was in all of his circumstances, could he have forgiven his brothers? And so, in order to apply this passage to our lives tonight, I want to focus on two main concepts. First, as I've I've already stressed, God is sovereign over all things. Second, our responsibility is to forgive others. And those two things are connected. When we understand that God is sovereign over all things, we will be, uh, it will be much easier to forgive other people. So first, God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. Even, even the evil acts of men. Look at verse 5 again. I want to show you these verses again. I already showed you them once, but I want you to see it in the text. This is not me. This is God. For God, the end of the verse, for God sent me before you 
Okay, You sold me here, but God sent me before you. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Verse 8, therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. At the end of the verse, He has made me a father to Pharaoh. Verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. God is sovereign over all things, including the evil acts of men. Let me bring this a little closer to home. Listen to me carefully. Every circumstance in your life, whether good or bad, is all a part of God's plan. Every circumstance, whether good or bad, is all a part of God's plan. Now this brings up a huge question in our minds. How could God be related to evil? God is good. How could He plan evil? How can He have any part of it? So, I need to be clear with what I am saying here because I don't want you to go to a place of unorthodox doctrine. Okay? So, first of all, the Scriptures are clear that God never does evil. He's never described of of doing evil. Job 34.10 Far be it from God to do evil. But as I mentioned before, no evil can happen apart from God, can it? No evil can happen apart from what God controls. Let me explain that. It's not that God is the source of evil. He's not the author of evil. He doesn't, he doesn't go down, you know, go and, and, and write up all this evil and say, this is what I want to happen, or force people to do evil. He's not the author of evil. The Scriptures are very clear about that. But think about it this way. If evil could happen apart from God's plan, where would that leave the world? We would actually have two different worlds, two different spheres within which we live. One is a sphere in which God is in control. God is in control of, let's say, all the good things in the world. And then you have this other world over here where all the evil happens. And what we would have to say is if God doesn't have any control over evil, then we have to say that this is outside of God's control. That there are evil things happening in the world that God can't control. That's not what the Scriptures teach. It teaches that He doesn't do the evil. He's not the author of evil. He's not the source of evil. But He has His control over the evil. No evil can happen independently of Him in a separate sphere, a separate world. Because if that were the case, then this world would be out of control. This world of evil would be out of control, out of God's control. It would be spiraling all over the place. And God would be over here simply reacting. And in fact, God would not be able to control the future because He doesn't know the future. He can't. You've got this evil happening over here. And so the best that God can do is be a good chess player. And try to think several moves ahead of where evil is going to happen. He can't know it because He hasn't planned it. But the Scriptures teaches that God is in control of all of it. It can't happen apart from Him. 
Turn to Exodus chapter 4. Okay, because now I've opened up a huge can of worms and I can't end now, can I? Exodus chapter 4. Proverbs 21 says, you don't turn there, but I'll just mention this verse. I've mentioned it often. The king's heart is like channels of water and God does what? He turns it whatever way He wishes. Okay, so let me just restate that verse and add a little phrase that will help qualify it or help explain it for us. The king's heart, whether good or evil, is like channels of water and God turns it whatever way He wishes. Now you may say, that cannot be. God would never do that. Let me show you an example of where He does. Turn the king's heart, an evil king's heart. Chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. Notice, it doesn't say Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says, I, God's saying, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Look over to chapter 7, verse 3. God repeats this idea. Chapter 7, verse 3. God says to Moses, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? That I might multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. The truth that we see here in chapter 4, verse 21, chapter 7, verse 3, is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened it. And He did it for a specific purpose, to bring about glory to Himself. So that He, so he actually says in chapter, I think it's chapter 9, verse 16 or 7, 16, where He says, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, so that you would make My name known. Well, wait a second, God. Hold on. You don't do that sort of thing. You don't raise up evil kings, do you? And God says, yes, I do. so that these signs and wonders could be seen among My people and throughout the whole world. What signs and wonders was He talking about? The ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Now, I don't have time to go into all what it means that God is hardening, but let me just try to explain it very quickly. When God hardens a person's heart. What is happening all the time throughout the world is that God is pouring out His common grace on evil people. What that means is He gives them a measure of grace so that they don't do all the evil things that they want to do. And as we went through the book of Job, I, I mentioned that, that it's as if God has them on a leash. At any time He can let go of the leash and let a little bit more out, He doesn't force them into doing evil. He sim simply pulls away from His common grace. He removes some of His common grace and they're like an attack dog. They want to go after evil. Do you realize that's where all of our hearts were before we came to Christ? We wanted our evil. We wanted our sin. But God restrained us. That's what grace is. It's a restraining of the evil that we want to do and we could do. Turn to Exodus 14. Exodus 14.
see more of God's purpose in doing this. Exodus 14. Chapter 14, verse 4. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. Okay, so after Israel leaves and parts towards, or heads towards the Red Sea, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will be foolish enough to go after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. It's not just about Israel knowing that I'm the Lord. It's these pagans as well. They need to know that I'm the Lord too. Not like come to know and, and saving faith. It's not the idea. But you need to... Sort of like what the demons are going to do. They're going to bow the knee and, and have to acknowledge that God is Lord when they see this great miracle that God performs among them. They need to see this. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, for you will be silent. You will keep silent. Verse 17. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, that is, into the Red Sea, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and through his horsemen. So let me ask you a question. Don't answer this out loud. Does God want evil to happen? Does God want evil to happen? Did He want Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? Did He want Joseph's brothers to betray him and sell him into slavery? And I think the answer has to be both yes and no. No, in one sense, He doesn't want that to happen. He wants them to obey Him. He wants them to bow the knee. That's His desire. But in another sense, yes, He does want them to do evil. Why? So that He can bring about the good that He has planned. So that He can bring about the glory that He deserves. And the best backdrop for us to see God in all of His glory is the backdrop of evil. When we recognize this dark, velvet backdrop of evil and we see this beautiful glowing diamond of God's character and God's work, we are marveled. God's glory would not be as enjoyed, as glorious if it were in a light background. It is glorious to see a diamond in a light background, but, but in a dark background, it, it highlights its beauty, doesn't it? And so while God doesn't want evil to happen, He also does in the sense that He can get glory from it. So God is sovereign, and this should what this should do for you and for others is to comfort them. It should comfort us as Christians. How, how do you view the most difficult times in your life? Turn back to Genesis chapter 45. How do you view the most difficult times in your life? Maybe the most difficult time in your life is right now. What is going on up there in heaven? Is God asleep? Did he let go of the wheel temporarily? Did Satan gain an advantage on God that I didn't know about? How do you view the most difficult times in your life? Or could it be, could it possibly be that God brought about the most difficult time in your life for His good purpose? Look at verse 7 again. God sent me before you 
to preserve preserve for you a remnant in the earth. Verse 4, You sold me, but God sent me before you. You sold me. You are responsible for your own sin. But it was God, ultimately, who is in control of these things. How do you view the most difficult times in your life? And I'm here to tell you tonight that it wasn't bad karma that you had that difficult experience. It wasn't bad luck or just an unfortunate coincidence that you broke your leg or that you lost your job or you got yelled at by your neighbor or you became estranged from your family or you fell into deep sin. You may have contributed to those circumstances. You may hold responsibility for many of those things. But you can't do any of those things and none of those things can happen to you apart from God's sovereign control. I don't know who contributed to your difficulty, whatever it is, or whatever it was. What I do know for sure is that no matter what has happened, no matter what is happening or what will ever happen in your life, God brought it about. God sent you into those circumstances. Romans 8.28 God causes all good things to work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Genesis 50.20 You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So you bring about the salvation of many people. There the preservation of life is the idea, not necessarily spiritual salvation. Acts 2.22 and 23. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourself know this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. You Jews, who I'm talking to, Peter says, you were responsible. You nailed Him to the cross. But it did not happen apart from God's predetermined plan. Can you think of a more evil act that has ever been committed than the crucifixion of our Savior? Can you? And what does the Scripture say in Acts 2.23? God predetermined it. He planned it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. Where's Paul writing that letter to Philippi? In prison. The greater the circumstances in my life right now, God has brought them about so that many people would come to know Him. And so, the great comfort that we should get from this passage tonight is that everything in life is of God. As Israel was getting ready to cross over the Jordan to conquer the land of Canaan. Remember what Joshua told them? 
He said, be careful to do all that God has commanded you and meditate on His Word day and night. Why is this so important, Joshua? Shouldn't we learn more battle, battle tactics? And the answer is because they needed to know and they were standing outside those impregnable walls of Jericho. The city that was built up on a hill with two huge walls protecting it. Humanly possible to defeat. They needed to know that God was sovereign. So you meditate. Go back to the Pentateuch. The writings of Moses. Go back and see how God worked there. Remember that God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. That He controls the weather. As we've seen in Genesis. He controls the animals. He controls the barren womb of a 90-year-old woman. And even God controls the evil acts of men. And He does it all for His great and mysterious purposes. Israel, you may not understand why I command you to walk around the city seven times. You may think that's foolish, but here's what I want you to learn. I am sovereign over all things. I don't need you. What I need you to do is trust Me. Watch how I worked with them. Watch how I worked through them. And then just trust Me. You don't need a lot of scheming and great resources and ability. All you need to do is trust Me. I can control all things. And I will never, never relinquish My power, My control. And so, believer, one of the reasons that we have for us preserved the book of Genesis is for our learning, for our understanding, for our encouragement, so that we would see God's sovereign hand of power work through ordinary and extraordinary means to bring about good purposes. So that when we come to the insurmountable trials that are just seemingly impossible, we can't do this, God. God wants us to be reminded of Genesis and say, yes, you're right, you can't. And that's why you need to trust Me. That's why you need to trust Me. You can look up and see, not defeat or retreat, but God's hand in it all the way. And while it may not turn out like you expected it to turn out or like you planned or wished or dreamed that it would turn out, you can be sure that it's exactly how I want it to be, God says. Even when it's evil, even when it's hard, someone mistreats you or beats you up or seeks to take your life, you can be sure that God's hand is in it. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, God's sovereignty should comfort us, but it shouldn't comfort us it shouldn't give us comfort to do sin and to be apathetic. Alan Ross again writes, With every sin comes a consequence, and certainly their lives were not what they might have been if they had not sinned so heinously. But whatever the case, we can see God's mercy in their reconciliation with God and with Joseph. In the process of this entire struggle, they gained a deeper appreciation for each other. Okay, so, here is the problems the Galatians were starting to face, you know, they, they started to get into this license for sin idea. We don't want to go down that road, okay? Since God is in, in control of all things, including my own sin, He knows it's going to happen because He's planned it's going to happen, then I can live however I want. But that should never give us comfort because 
with these brothers, they should never have looked back on their life and said, hmm, I'm glad I did this. Because it brought about a lot of good. And so now I'm going to see how I can defy God even more. Maybe He can do some more great things through, through my sin. That's not the point. That's a, a misunderstanding, a wrong understanding of God's grace. So, I said we talk about God's sovereignty and then how God's sovereignty is connected to our forgiving of others. A proper understanding of God's sovereignty, that He is in control of all things, will help us to forgive other people. Joseph was in a position to do great harm to his brothers, his accusers, his the people who mistreated him, and to take revenge on them. And he could have, but instead he says, God sent me here. I'm not going to fight against you because I know God sent me here. Jesus recognized the same thing. Luke 23:34. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. Stephen, Acts 7:60. Do not hold this sin against them. How could somebody in that position ever forgive their very killers, their murderers? How could someone do that? And the only answer is to understand rightly God's sovereignty, God's grace on them. So if you want to avoid retaliation and bitterness, the only way to do that is to understand that God is in it all and trust Him fully. God, I don't understand what You're doing through these people who are doing evil to me. I don't understand what You're doing through my own struggle with sin, but what I do understand You are in control. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust you as you have displayed yourself in your word. It's the only way to remove hearts of bitterness, to to avoid holding a grudge, is to understand God's sovereignty. And as I've mentioned before, forgiveness happens long before a person asks for it, doesn't it? When do you suppose forgiveness happened in Joseph's heart? Did he have to determine it right on the spot? Like if you know now that Judah said this, wow, I'm kind of shocked at this. I got to determine if I'm going to forgive him or not. It happened a long time ago. The text doesn't specifically say, but but he didn't wait until they reconciled with him to forgive them. He already had an attitude of forgiveness, so that when they came, he was ready to forgive. The only way we can do this is if we understand God's sovereignty. We understand what we've been forgiven of. I often point your attention to Matthew chapter 18 where you have the unjust servant, the unjust slave who goes after his slave and chokes him after having been forgiven a huge debt, an insurmountable debt. And what's the point of that passage? We will not forgive until we understand what we've been forgiven of, that our debt was much greater to God. Anything that's done against us, okay, and I don't want to minimize your trial, but, but understand me rightly, in comparison to what we did to Christ, is insignificant. The greatest evil that has happened to you is insignificant compared to the great evil that you did to Christ when you put Him on the cross. It was your sin. And He would have died just for you. Don't think it's the Hitlers of the world that Christ had to suffer so much. He had to give His life as a ransom to buy back your life to God. And He would have done it if it was only your sin. 
And so that great evil you did to Christ is much greater than anything anyone could ever do to you. And that's why we can have a heart of forgiveness. Peter says, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus says, not seven times, Peter, but as many times as they sin against you. Keep forgiving. Keep on forgiving. How can we do this? We understand God's sovereignty and what we've been forgiven of. best comfort a person can ever know is that God is sovereign over all things. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are comforted by Your Word. And the truth, even through this difficult doctrine of trying to understand the connection that you have with the evil acts of the world. We're comforted by the fact that you are in control of all things and that nothing, not one speck of the universe is operating apart from your control. And we can talk about the whole picture, the big picture of all the universes under your control, but really comes home when we think about the specific evils that have been done to us. Or even the specific evils that have come from our own hearts. If you're in control of these things, why allow them? We, we don't fully understand that. But what we do understand is that you are in control of them and that you're doing all these things to bring about glory to your name. So we want to align our thoughts and our hearts with yours so that we can live our lives for Your glory, and speak Your name for Your praise. You deserve that we live as sacrifices, wholly giving ourselves to You and nothing less. And we pray that You'd help us to give this area of our lives. We would not ever try to explain circumstances away because it was just a stroke of luck or karma or just a coincidence, but rather that everything happens because of You, because You planned it. And, and that's hard to reconcile, Lord. You know that. You, each one of us is thinking of all sorts of areas in our lives that, that can't be that way. They just, it just can't. So we pray that You help us to believe first. Believe that Your ways are not our ways. We can't fully understand everything and all the specific purposes. We may never know why You do any of these things. We may never know exactly how You do all these things, but we do know that You do have control over the King's heart, over even the evilest act that's ever been committed, the crucifixion of our Savior. And therefore, You have control over all things. Lord, we're thankful that there is Nothing outside of Your control. May that be a comfort to us, a challenge to us. May we think about that this week as we go through our lives, as trials come, as trials go, as other people have trials and we have opportunities to comfort them. May we help them to see God's sovereignty in it as Job did, as Joseph did, as Jesus did, as Stephen did. Help us, we pray. May we respond rightly to Your Word, not to be hearers only, but to doers also, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.